We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 today. Acts chapter 4. And again, the name of our series is Acts, the Church on Earth. And the title of today's message is In the Name of Jesus. And I think this is going to be part one of probably two parts for In the Name of Jesus. But we're going to cover the first 12 verses today in Acts chapter 4. And uh, again, um, the word acts, praxeus, like we just read in Psalms, the mighty acts of the Lord. Usually that word was used for kings or priests or someone powerful. And yet we see it used for a couple of common guys here. I mean, Peter was common. John was common. These are all fishermen who got saved. And we see the acts of the church and as they're carried out. And um, I think that's amazing that God can use anybody. And God chooses to use anyone that he's not reliant on. Um, an education or money or stature, although he will use those things. You know, we love when we see uh, sports stars or famous people get saved, and a lot of people hear the gospel through them, but God doesn't have to use that. That's not more important than when God saves the homeless guy uh, on the street, or as we've seen recently, um, the guy who was lame, who was basically a beggar. Um, but last week we saw that he was healed, or in the past couple of weeks we've seen that. We saw the people reacted to his healing, that, hey, we're in church, and isn't this guy leaping and jumping, the one who was sitting at the gate begging all those years that we tried to give a little money to here and there? And we saw Peter's response to that, that people saw this miracle, were flabbergasted, didn't really know what to make of it, and Peter gave the same message that he gave at the day of Pentecost. He gave it again. God sent Jesus. You killed him. God raised him from the dead that you might be saved and you might be forgiven. And that was Peter's response. Um, and we're going to see how the religious leaders take to that today. When they show up at church, they show up at temple back in the day, and they begin this message of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. But a lot of people, you know, do things in the name of. Do things in the name of. You know, as I've been looking at this scripture and considering and the name of it, I can't help but think of this old rock song for the, from the 90s, uh, Killing in the Name of. It's not, I wouldn't recommend the song or tell you to buy the CD, but... Man, the song was all about people killing people in the name of whatever, in the name of religion or other things, and, and that goes on a lot today. We see people do things in the name of, whether it's love. Oh, I went out, I bought all these flowers, and I cleaned my car, and I you know, took a shower this month and just to go out on this date because you're doing it in the name of love. Or people do things in the name of God. Well, I'm going out, and I'm going to go feed the homeless in the name of God or feed the homeless in the name of uh, St. Mary or whoever it is that they're, uh, they're doing the name of or the name of Allah even, name of other religions where they're going out and you're killing other people um, for that. And uh, Christianity has seen that fair share of that or quote-unquote Christianity. We're doing things in the name of freedom. We're going to revolt against our oppressive government in the name of freedom. We've seen that all throughout the Middle East and uh, in other places um, or religion or even staying true where these kids do things in the name of being straight edge. I don't know if, how popular it is anymore, but when I was growing up, kids used to put X's on their hands because it meant that they didn't drink and they didn't do drugs or things like that. But they weren't religious. You know, they were going out and doing the same things everyone else was, but they were straight edge, and they would do things in the name of that. Also came to mind was, if you guys ever watch a TV show or a movie or a newscast, and that little warning comes up before that says, the opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the network of the production company, and you're like, well, you're still showing it. <laughs> you're still making money off the advertising. Um, and I thought it was interesting as I was looking up to get the exact quote for that, that 
this one website said that ABC Family has the same statement just before the 700 Club. Whatever you think of 700 Club is not really the point. But uh, basically, it's a Christian show, and it says deletes the word necessarily. So basically, ABC says the opinions expressed in the show do not reflect the views of the production company at all. So I kind of get that. I think that's where the world is going, that they'll allow certain things to happen, but they don't want, it's not done in our name. You know, don't attach our logo to it. We have nothing to do with it. But what are some things that we do in the name of, in the name of, you know, Visa accepted everywhere. You know, you go to the door like, oh, I don't have any cash anymore. Do they take a debit card? Yep, they take my debit card. Or maybe if you traveled overseas and maybe you don't want to get in trouble with the law, you say, well, I'm a U.S. citizen. Or you're in, uh, going through the passport agency. Uh, what do they call it? Customs. You show your passport. I'm a citizen. You know, let me through. I'm okay. Whatever's in my bag, I'm okay. Um, or I work for. Do you know who I work for? Do you know who I work for? Or a sports team. Got to wear the, the Steelers logos. Got to have the stickers on your car, Ravens or whoever it is. Or other people sometimes just do things in their own name. Like, do you know who I am? Especially when they get angry or <laughs> you step on their toes. Like, do you know who I am? Uh, no. <laughs> I know you're going to tell me, though. <laughs> but, man, do we th do things in the name of a lot of things these days? And I'm not saying they're wrong or right. I'm just saying we do a lot of things in the name of. But we're going to see a difference between the things that are of this world and the things of the true name. So, uh, Lord, again, we pray. We're going to pray in your name, not because uh, it's a magic potion or a magic spell, but, Lord, because, God, you're the only name. Uh, you're the only name in heaven and on earth and uh, below the earth who has power. And, God, we trust in you, and we look forward to what you're going to teach us and speak to us about in your word today. Uh, so please uh, come and continue to be here in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read the first uh, four verses here of Acts chapter 4 says, now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. We see here now, as they spoke to the people, this was uh, Peter and John, again, uh, they had healed this man, or God had healed this man through them. They said, we don't have any money, but what we do have, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And they healed him. And uh, the people were amazed, and Peter and John began to explain the gospel to them. But it says that they spoke to the people. And I think that it's interesting that, you know, they didn't say, well, come to church with us next week. Here's a pamphlet. They said, this is the truth. And, and they began to speak and interact with the people. Um, they were one of the people, and they were willing to speak with them. But it's also interesting that as they were doing this, uh, problems came up. That as they were sharing the gospel with the people, as they were sharing the truth of God's word and revealing the truth of what had just happened before them, that problems came up. I don't know if you guys have been around the ministry, quote unquote, or just been sharing with someone before and a problem comes up, their phone rings, someone interrupts the conversation, maybe someone even goes as far as heckling. As we see in, in chapter 2 when uh, the day of Pentecost comes and the people began to, to speak in tongues and share the gospel, that some people say, hey, this is, we want to know more. We, why are we hearing all these great things of God in our language? And the other people go, oh, it's 9 in the morning. These guys are wasted. They're drunk out of their minds. You see that there's hecklers already trying to throw those things in there. Or maybe later on, as we'll get to in the book of Acts, if the Lord doesn't return, that there's a demonic girl who comes along and says, hey, you guys are serving the living God. And Paul says, stop speaking, you know, come out of her. That there's this demonic person who comes along and pretends to speak the gospel. 
I had a friend in New York, uh, in New York who um, pastored a church in Harlem for a while. He took over the church for a while and was there for a couple of years. And uh, I remember going down for a while in the summer one year. And a uh, small church, you know, 20, 30 people, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but it was small in size. Maybe it was about as wide as where we are right here and, and back a little bit farther. And then there was a couple offices in the back and kids in a little backyard. Um, but there's a couple rows of chairs on each side. And somewhere in the beginning of the service, it was after worship, it was during the teaching, someone comes in. You could tell they, they looked a little weird. They looked a little funny. But, hey, cool, this is New York City. I think everyone looks a little weird, looks a little funny. And they come in and they sit and they're listening and the Bible teaching is going on. And I forget how long it was. It wasn't too long. I mean, it could have been more than 15 minutes. But this person stands up and starts making a show of things, starts speaking back and speaking these things and putting on some sort of show. And they were definitely weird and they had to be carried out of the service because they started to be a disruption. It wasn't that they had a legitimate question. It wasn't that they were legitimately seeking something. You know, obviously you would take them aside and talk to them, but they were in there and I wouldn't be surprised if they were under the influence of either some substance or some spiritual power, but they had to be taken out. And that's what was happening. The gospel was going forth. There were people in there from New York City ready to hear the gospel. And what does the enemy do? The enemy says, hey, I want to bring my little guy in here to disrupt this thing. But it's interesting here that we don't see some crazy person come into their midst. We don't see um, an angry mob come over like we might see later. Who do we see show up? The religious guys, the religious leaders, the leaders of the temple, um, or at least this sect of them, the Sadducees came upon them. But before we get into them, you know, God wants to reach the people. God wants to reach people. God didn't just come into the world and do a few things and say, hey, just believe in me and I'll see you later. He met the people. He walked around when he was on earth. Jesus walked everywhere. He made stops to speak to the people. And when this miracle happens that not only impacts this guy's life, it's also meant to impact the people around them. And Peter and John begin to minister to these people. You know, Jesus said in Luke 14, 23 and 24, Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house might be filled. That God wants everyone to be able to go to heaven. And God wants to reach everyone. It's not just for a certain ethnic group or a certain class or a certain nationality or whatever you want to call it. God wants to reach everybody. God wants to reach the people. The people. But here at this point, like we talked about, the religious leaders, the Sadducees came in. These guys come in, picture them coming in with their robes and their pomp and their circumstances. Maybe you've been going to temple here your whole life and you recognize these guys. These are the guys always around. These are the ones that a lot of people listen to and get advice from. And uh, maybe even these guys do other things around the area. But they were greatly disturbed. Greatly disturbed. And I like the way that's written. Uh, that word is to be troubled, displeased, offended, pained, or to be worked up. Picture them coming in. What's going on? What, what is all this commotion? It's the hour of prayer. Why is this guy jumping around? Why are these people going around? Who are these people thinking they can teach in the middle of temple? What is going on over here? They're troubled. They're displeased. They're pained. Worked up. Worked up. Man, do we get worked up over little things sometimes. But I, you know, when it comes down to spiritual things, maybe we get worked up. Maybe we get worked up. But why were they so worked up? Why were they so disturbed? It says that they were, because these guys were preaching in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Two things that disturbed them. Not, they weren't amazed that this guy was healed. Hey, tell us how this guy was healed. This is amazing. For some reason, they were totally distracted by the fact that they were preaching in Jesus' name, the resurrection from the dead. And, and why, did, why is that? Why were these guys so upset over that? Well, I think part of it is because they're Sadducees. And maybe you've heard a good way to say their name is they're sad, you see. 
because they didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in the spiritual side of things. They believed in being, in a sense, spiritual on earth, but they didn't believe necessarily in the afterlife or angels or things. According to Josephus, uh, they believe there is no fate, uh, that God does not commit evil. I would believe that as well, uh, that God doesn't commit evil. Man has free will. Man has a free choice of good or evil. So they believed certain things that we would all believe as well. But they said the soul is not immortal, that there's no afterlife, and there are no rewards or penalties after death. So it was a very here and now sort of thing for them. They were sad, you see. They had no hope. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Um, they believed somehow, they believed, I don't know all the details, but they believed in Sheol, where this is, we won't get into the whole discussion of hell and everything. Um, but they believed in that, and they didn't believe in the afterlife. So it was very, very interesting, very strange. You know, a lot of people have a lot of strange beliefs. They get religious, they've been around religious things, they go, begin to go off on their own tangents and pick and choose what they want to believe, or they just pick and choose from their tradition. But I think it's very similar to some beliefs we have today to live in the now. That there's no eternal consequences. That go do what you want and be who you are and there's no consequences to that. And maybe there aren't any immediate consequences. Maybe you don't see the consequences for 20, 30 years. Maybe you don't see them all in this life. But guaranteed, if the Bible is true, which it is, there are consequences to that. And I think part of why they didn't like the resurrection, and maybe it's one of those two-sided coins where they didn't like the resurrection because it taught them consequences, but they didn't, they didn't want to deal with consequences, so they didn't want to believe the resurrection. But the resurrection stands firmly in the face of that. Why? I think because if you can come back from the dead, then death isn't the end. If you die, some time amount passes. It's not just you fell asleep and it was hard to get your pulse, but you were dead for a couple days and you come back. Well, there's obviously something to happen in between. Your soul obviously goes on and lives on after that. So if that's the case, then, well, there could be some consequences. If this life isn't it and you died and came back, well, that means you went somewhere else. And what is that somewhere else? Well, we know what it is, but they weren't really sure. You know, people who don't believe in any afterlife, really, after this life, they say that life is value more. I value life. That's why I do everything that I want. That's why I get everything that I want. That's why I think everything should be legal and free and given to me and entitlement. And I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what the cost to you because it's my life and I want to live it to the fullest, right? But really, although they say they value life more, life is really devalued because life is something that is eternal. And to take something that has eternal value and smush it into 70, 80, maybe 120 years at most, and say that that's all the value it has, that it has no eternal value, well, you've really devalued it quite a lot at that point. And I think the behavior reveals that. I mean, we won't get into too many specifics, but look at all of the things that people do when they live for the now, and the, the consequences of that, the things that affect other people, the things that affect society, and even worse than that, the things that affect their eternal destiny, just because they were worried about living for now and, and being in the now. But as believers, we have a hope. We haven't been to the other life yet. We haven't been to the afterlife yet. But we know someone who has. We know someone who dwells there. We know someone who's given us his word from there, who's created this life and the next life. We have a hope. You know, 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that our hope is alive and well because of one thing. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If, like we've talked about before, if he didn't come back from the dead, well, then we've got trouble. 
to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith or salvation, ready to be revealed for the last time. That unlike these Sadducees, Jesus says that there is an inheritance for you after this life. There is a reward for you after this life that's incorruptible, undefiled. That, like Jesus said, lay up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy because no one's going to be able to take them from you. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19-22, Paul says, If in this life, I think we've read this before too, but that we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, that if, if our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he didn't come back from the dead, well, we're pretty sad. We're pretty pit, uh, pitiable and miserable people because we've got hope in something that doesn't exist. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That our hope is through the resurrection. Our hope is not for this life. Because if your hope is in this life, man, you're going to be investing your brains out. You're going to want, I'd be wanting to move to a bunker or move to another country or go somewhere where I could have hope, where I could have freedom, where I could do what I believe is the right thing to do. But because I have the hope of the resurrection, I go, okay, yeah, no matter how bad things get, I know one day I'm going to go to heaven. No matter how many things I have or I don't have, I know that in heaven, I'm going to have everything. And more than that, I'm going to be with Jesus forever, and 70-some-odd years on earth really isn't going to be a problem for me anymore. But it says here that they laid hands on them. They laid hands on them. This isn't nicely, like if you've been around church before, Come, let's lay hands on you and pray for you. You're sick. Let's lay hands on you. Let me give you a hug, bro. Let me give you a high five. No, it was they forcefully took them away. Just like Jesus was ripped out of the garden, they ripped these guys out of the middle of the people. They're sharing the gospel. They're sharing this truth. I don't know if it was 30 seconds, five, five minutes, 10 minutes. Who, who knows how long it was. But these guys come in and rip them out of there. They rip them out of there. And part of that speaks is that religious people tend to get in the way of the truth. Religious people, what, no matter what the religion is, whether it's they believe in what the Bible says, but they're very religious about it, or they believe in theories of origin and existence like Darwinism, where they somehow have a beef with Christianity so much that they're going to put a Darwin sticker that looks like a Jesus fish with feet on the back of their car. Well, you can believe in Darwin all you want, but Darwin's dead, and I don't put a sticker on the back of my car. I mean, maybe some Christians do that says, you know, Darwin is dead. I kind of want to do that. <laughs> Just to kind of nudge back. But really, if you want to believe that, that's, that's your problem. You know, I'm going to share the truth with you, and I'm going to tell you that the Bible is very clear that it's, it's wrong, but I'm not out to get you. I'm not out to stop you from believing that and prevent you from it. In a way, I am, because I want you to know the truth, and I want you to live forever, but in a way, I'm not, I'm not going to go out there and persecute you for it. Are you idiot? Yeah, well, but the other way they are, because they're very religious about it. Or this idea of sexual freedom, quote-unquote, uh, that's been going on for the past 60 years or so about parades, laws. But all these things really prohibit, are beginning to prohibit spiritual freedom in a sense. They think that if they take away your free speech, they take away your ability to believe what you want. You can believe what you want, the Supreme Court says, but you just can't act it out. You just can't live it out. Well, they're trying to prevent you from living free so that someone else can live free. They're trying to inhibit spiritual freedom for sexual freedom. But that's only in a sense, because if we have true spiritual freedom in Jesus, they can enact whatever the law they want to make speaking about the Bible illegal, but we're still free. 
we could still preach the word. We could still share the word. We could still go to heaven. We just may spend a few years in jail, which I'm not really looking forward to. And you think of these guys in these other countries who are in jail for doing the same very, very same thing, except another religion says they can. And, and I don't envy their position in a way. But their reward will be great. Or you think of perhaps maybe the Catholic Church over history preventing people from getting access to the Bible. Oh, Bible's only for the priests. It's only for the special people, and we're going to keep it in Latin so that you can't understand it. And I know the Catholic Church come around a lot in those things. Um, my sister-in-law uh, is Catholic, and she was going to a, a Catholic church where they were actually having Bible studies. I'm like, that's cool. Good for you. Um, maybe you'll come to the truth. But in sincerity, a lot of these religious movements, even in other areas, say that, oh, you can't understand the Bible. It's for the pastor. That's for the priest. That's for the reverend. But it's for everybody. It's for everybody. Yeah, I try and teach through the Bible on Sundays. But I'm not saying that I'm the only source. Definitely not saying I'm the only source. There's plenty of other good teachers out there. But more than that, like the Bible says, we have the Holy Spirit. We can read the Bible. We can pray. And we can see what God would speak to us about. And, and not that that means you can uh, believe anything you want about the Bible. It's good to be under other teachers and other things to make sure that we're understanding things correctly. But we're not preventing people from getting the word. And in fact, it should be the opposite. We should be trying to get the word out there to the people. That goes to say, when we're witnessing or ministering to people, we need to watch out for those who are receptive. We need to say, oh, well, who's listening? Who's listening when I'm sharing with you? Who is, who is picking up? And, and not so much necessarily maybe in a Bible study scenario, more of maybe in a, a witnessing or an evangelism scenario where you're on the street, you meet a few people, begin to share the gospel or ask them what they think about God or the Ten Commandments or any of those methods or ways that you might do. But if you've ever done that before, even once, you've probably seen somebody who's receptive and somebody who's not. Or maybe nobody's been receptive. <laughs> but if you do it for a couple times, you'll begin to see that usually there's one person, even in a big crowd, that's really listening. Maybe they're not going to believe that day, but they're listening. And because of that, we need to guard the conversation from those who would take it away or distract out of a heart of unbelief, where you're out there ministering, you're out there sharing, somebody is actually listening, and maybe it's not even the person you're talking to. Maybe you're talking to the person that is totally closed off, but out of the corner of your eye, you see someone who is receptive, who is listening. You want to make sure that the person you're talking to, even if you don't change the conversation, is not leading the conversation away from the truth, because a lot of times out of a heart of unbelief, people begin to ask silly questions, maybe not even on purpose, but they'll begin to, to cloud the waters a little bit, to muddy the waters, and, and begin to take the, the, the conversation away from where it needs to be. And if we're going out there to share these things and, the, and to share them, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that. But back to the, uh, Peter and John here. It says that they were jailed overnight. That just like Jesus, they took, you know, they jailed him overnight here, but Jesus was so bad, they said, we're going to meet in the middle of the night, even though we don't normally do this because we want to do it out of the way. But they were jailed overnight. No due process, no lawyer, no phone call. Just said, hey, we're going to arrest you. And it was only in the middle of the afternoon at this point. So maybe it was later in the afternoon. Maybe it was still uh, the middle of the afternoon at the ninth hour, they said, or three o'clock. But they jailed him overnight. And uh, it's like this in a lot of places around the world. And I believe it's coming to Christians here where you begin to share your faith, you're going to get more than maybe made fun of or just thought of as a simpleton. But we're going to begin to be sued more. We're going to begin to be brought to court more and not allowed to meet publicly anymore. I don't know how quick it's going to be. Hopefully, prayerfully, it never really comes, but, but maybe it will. Maybe it will. 
You know, other religions right now are crucifying people, beating them for not obeying the religious laws, or even hearing or speaking about Christianity. They go to jail and they trump up some charge against them, and they're never released. What's great about this is that as they shared, this miracle happened as they shared about the miracle and about the gospel, and as they're arrested, it didn't stop many from believing. The people didn't go, oh, they're arrested. I don't want to believe this anymore. They go, wow, this makes a lot of sense. This guy got healed. What they shared makes sense. I got cut to the heart by God, and I began to believe. And it says that the number of men, the number of men was about 5,000. If you guys remember this, uh, the story where Jesus and the 12 loaves and the little boy brings his lunch and they feed the 5,000, um, and there's kind of two different accounts, possibly two different times of that. But it says that there's the number of men, and that was a way of counting back then. There was a lot of people. You counted the men. Uh, society sort of in that day and age valued the man more than the woman and even in our society up until about a hundred or so years ago was the same way where women couldn't vote but God doesn't see women that way and so let's not take that verse out of context God says that man or female or female no matter what ethnicity you are all are one in Christ and we all have the same value in God but they're saying right here the number of men was about 5,000 if you remember in chapter 1 um, it was a few hundred before the day of Pentecost, there was a couple hundred people possibly gathered in that upper room waiting for Jesus to come. They, uh, they cast lots and tried to figure out what was going on. So the church was about a couple hundred people. The day of Pentecost comes, the gospel is shared, people come to know God, and it's a few 3,000 souls. So it goes from a couple hundred people to 3,000 souls, and we kind of dug into that a little bit there. But now it says that 5,000 men in chapter 4. And if they're counting by men, that means that they're not talking about the women, they're not talking about the children, they're not talking about the, uh, the other people there, but it's men. So this number could be 10,000, 15,000, it could be more based on the way they counted things back then if they used that terminology. And that's exponential growth. Within a matter of days, a matter of weeks, it goes from a couple hundred people who had witnessed the resurrection, Dave Pentecost, a couple thousand, and now it's thousands upon thousands of people. That's a lot. That's a lot. Talk about exponential growth. If you were to chart that, it's not up on the chart exponentially. But again, it says that the Lord, the Lord was adding. We've seen that before, and we see it here, where they heard the word and they believed. The Lord was doing the growth, and the Lord was doing it by the word. They heard the word, and they believed the word, and they got saved. It's the Lord who does the adding here, and it's, it's obvious. A pastor recently said, and I'm not going to give his name, he said, guys that preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, that is just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. That isn't how you grow people. No one in the scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that. And he goes on later to say, all scripture is equally inspired, but not all scripture is equally applicable or relevant to every stage of life. My challenge, he says, is to read culture and to read the audience and ask, what is the felt need? Or perhaps what is more important? What, can, what is an unfelt need that they need to feel that I can address? Because if they don't feel it, then they won't address it. Well, let's see what Isaiah says in 29, 28, 9, and 10. He says, Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn uh, from the breast? And I didn't copy the other verse. Let me go there. But he says, basically, let's go line upon line. I apologize. I just want to read it to you because it's a good one. Here we go. Verse 10, he says, um, For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. He's saying, 
We need to know the word. We need to teach the word. Not that there's anything wrong with teaching topical. I listen to a couple of guys who are totally topical all the time. I know some guys in Calvary Movement who are topical on Sundays and they do a, an evening study. I think even Chuck did it that way. That's fine. I'm not here. Again, like this whole Darwin bumper sticker issue. I don't have a bumper sticker on my car that says, topical is silly. Don't teach topical. No, it's definitely applicable from time to time, or even all the time, if that's what you feel the Lord's calling you to do. But to say that teaching the Bible verse by verse is not a good way to do it, that it's not biblical, well, what does Acts 2.42 say? They continued in the Apostles' Doctrine. And what are we doing? We're continuing in the Apostles' Doctrine. And is it easier? In a way, yeah. I don't have to think about what to teach. I just go through the Bible, and I teach the Bible. And if that's easier, so be it. I don't want to complicate it. I don't want it to be what I want to talk about every week. That would be silly, and unfortunately, I get in there. But really, real growth comes from teaching of the Word of God. These people got saved because they heard the Word of God. And if there's the Word of God in the topical teaching, great. But really, if you're going to say that I need to feel what they need to feel, I get what he's saying in a sense, like we talked about, where you want to be perceptive about what the audience is seeing. Like here, we saw that these people saw the miracle. They didn't understand what the cause of the miracle was or what power the miracle was done in, as we'll see. And so they, they, they saw that perceived need and they spoke to it. But is this a Sunday morning at a church? Is this a Bible study of believers? No, he's sharing with unbelievers here. He's sharing with people who don't yet know the truth of the gospel. But real growth, like I said, comes from the teaching of the Word of God. You know, I don't want to do the feeling. I don't want to feel what needs to be taught. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do that. God is going to bring out through His Word what needs to be taught. I'd rather say, okay, yeah, maybe it's easier for me to go verse by verse and not have to come up with a message. Well, fantastic. It's not that easy to go through the Bible and get everything. Um, and you probably say, well, your messages are pretty weak, so they're probably pretty easy. Well, maybe that's the case, but it's not that easy. It takes time and it takes effort. But I've been to places that teach what I would call, or what I've heard called, sermonettes for Christianettes. Where you go, and you know, I went to the city where there was a great worship service, but then they had the 15-minute message. And yeah, you might be thinking, yes, if we only had a 15-minute message. You can get a lot out in 15 minutes. I'm sure someone who's more skilled than I could give a great message in 15 minutes and call it a day, and we'd be good for a month. But the point is, is that the message wasn't very deep. It was very fluffy. It was very milky. It wasn't... It wasn't very good. It wasn't very good. You know, when, when Jacob has a bottle or Jacob has a little meal, it's this tiny little meal and it's over in a couple of minutes. But if you and I were to go out on a feast, maybe celebrate our anniversary or go out and have a party, we have this giant meal, different courses, all these other things that come through. And it's much more nourishing because if we were to live on baby food the rest of our lives, we'd probably be in trouble. But I see that for those who teach very simple messages, I don't see a lot of physical growth. I see a lot of, I mean, spiritual growth. I see a lot of physical growth. You'll come to a church that has 50,000 people in it, and you got Joel Osteen holding up his Bible, and he never opens the Bible. And there's a lot of people there, but I wonder how deep have they really gotten in the Word of God? How deep is their relationship with the Lord? And yeah, I see churches that are very small physically, but the Word is taught, and they know the Word, and they believe the Word, and they do the Word, and their spiritual depth and their spiritual growth is much bigger. You know, again, I didn't want to address this. I saw this on Facebook a couple times last week, and I'm in the middle of, like, working my way out of Facebook. But I could care less. Yeah, it upset me. Yeah, it bothered me. But I didn't really want to read it. But as I'm studying this area of Scripture, I felt like it was something that the Lord would have me address. 
and it's actually going on around us. It's actually something that's sweeping through Christianity right now. People are talking about it. But I wouldn't repost it. I wouldn't talk about it otherwise. I wouldn't, even when we get done here, I don't want to talk about it. But I think it makes sense. You know, what I would reply to that would be grow your church however you want. But I want to be a part of the Lord's church and how he grows it. I don't want to grow it by teaching what I want to teach or what I feel is the, is the felt need. I want the Lord to do it by what the Lord sees is the, is the need. And let's go on. Verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, uh, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which was become the, the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name by under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It says the next day that they've been in jail all night. They were in this religious jail that was probably part of the temple or where the high priest was. But the next day, they come in and they say, they get the big dogs, the high priest. They get the whole crew together, the rulers, the elders, and scribes. And they were really upset. It says that Annas was the high priest. Caiaphas was there. He was the one during Jesus' day. But we've got another guy now. But it says that they set them in their midst. So these guys, these religious guys, maybe they were talking all night. Maybe they were talking in the morning. Maybe they had a, a, a little breakfast powwow together. And they were talking about how important it was that they deal with this issue before they bring the guys in. Um, uh, their hats were in a ruffle. And they got their teeth sharpened. Of one another, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to take care of these guys. And then they bring out Peter and John and set them in the midst. Can you picture that? Can you picture yourself there? Are you sweating? What's going to happen? Are you hungry? Maybe, I don't know if they got three square meals. I don't know if they had a cot in there. Were they sore from sleeping? Had they been roughed up a little bit? I don't know. They were taken forcefully. But they say, by what power... And by what name have you done this? By what power or what name have you done this? And I think number one, realizing it or not, they are asking the right questions. They're asking the very right questions for the situation. By what power have you turned all these people around? You know, the high priest perhaps realized that they didn't have this power. This guy had been outside the temple the whole time. Who knows? Maybe the high priest sprinkled something on him and the guy never got healed. I don't know. I don't know what happened, of course, to this guy's life. But they had lost their influence as well. Not only were they not able to heal this guy, replicate this miracle. Maybe if we think of Pharaoh and his uh, guys trying to recreate the miracles that Moses was doing. But more than that, I think they were upset because they lost their influence. All of these thousands of people who were at the temple for the time of prayer began to be influenced by this. These couple of Joes walk in, heal this guy in the name of Jesus. All these people get saved. Wow, there's power here. More than just healing this guy. There's this influence going on. And we see that today. We see certain religions and certain uh, uh, try, trying to find, uh, regain their lost influence in society. They're trying to be hip. They're trying to change the way they act, change the words they use, or uh, just become more, quote-unquote, relevant to young people. 
Sometimes they tell real believers that they're not qualified. I've heard a, a guy I know as a pastor, and he went to a pastor's meeting in the area where he was pastoring, and there were a lot of guys who had titles and seminary degrees, and, and he had just been a pastor for a while and moved up and started a church and was pastoring there for a while. And they asked him what seminary he went to, and he said, well, at school Moses? You know, he had gotten saved and went to church. And again, not that there's anything wrong with seminary, but they looked down on him like he was incapable of doing the work of God because they didn't have a degree on the wall. And yet, again... I don't know. I don't know. But they say, by what power? It can't be God because you're not a religious leader. It can't be God because you haven't gone to seminary. So is it a demonic influence? Like perhaps they said to Jesus in Matthew 12, 22 through 28. Then one was brought to him who was demon possessed, blind and mute, and they healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, this is the other sect. Um, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. They believed in the spiritual side of things, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? <laughs> Therefore, they shall be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right there. If I'm doing this, and it's the power of God, which you guys don't obviously had, then surely God's kingdom is upon you. Surely I am the Messiah. Surely I am the Son of David who's come to rule and to reign. You know, Jesus got, Jesus got this said to him. Even God, when he came to earth and was doing good things and miracles, people attributed to the, to the devil. In number two, these guys, the Sadducees and the high priests and the leaders, they say, by what name? By what name? By what name are you doing it? So it wasn't that they, uh, it wasn't a name that they were using. Um, it wasn't their name that they were using, excuse me. But they realized that there was a connection between the power and the name. They said, there's something going on here. You guys use this name of Jesus and something happened. Something happened. But I think more than uh, really they were curious, what name is it? Can you tell us what name it is so that we can know this name, we can know this person and put our faith in them? But really it was more setting them up setting them up to use the name of Jesus. They were also, you know, setting them up to confess the name of Jesus, like they wanted Jesus to admit that he was the Son of God, that, hey, would you just admit, admit you're the Son of God so that we can stone you by our religious law? Would you admit that you're the Messiah, that we can crucify you? Would you admit that you blasphemed because we don't believe you're God, but we want to hear it out of your mouth so we can kill you? In the same sort of sense, would you just admit that you're speaking in Jesus' name so we can bring up charges against you? But it says that Peter's response, again, in verse 8, that Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, filled again. Okay, so the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Peter's filled, he gives a message. Peter's filled and gives a message and shares and heals this guy. Peter's filled again, filled again. You know, we need God to fill us up over and over. It's been said that we leak, that this, you know, there's salvation there's God comes alongside of us, brings us to salvation. There's salvation where God lives inside of us. But then there's also God is going to fill us with his power to do his work. And that's the miracle we need to rely on. Not a miracle around us, but the miracle that God would actually live inside of us and begin to use us and speak through us and, and use us to perhaps even heal people. But I don't know what, what James and John, were, uh, Peter and John, excuse me, were thinking at this time. I don't know. I can try and imagine. We can try and imagine. But maybe they remembered Jesus' words from uh, the night before in jail. 
Maybe God reminded them of this uh, time Jesus spoke to them when they were sitting there, when they were being brought in before these people in Matthew 10. And for time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I think as I was reading uh, Matthew 10 uh, for this reference last night, there's a lot of verses in there that we quote as Christians, and we kind of miss them out of context. I think it's important to, to see them. So if you have time later, check out Matthew chapter 10. But 16 through 20 says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Maybe they were trying to figure out what we're going to say, but no, God said don't worry about it. You just tell them the truth. I'm going to speak through you. You don't need to come up with a five-point plan. You don't need a lawyer. You don't need all these other things that we might turn to. But just give them the answers that I give you. It's interesting that Peter starts out and he acknowledged them for who they were in physical power and physical name. He said they were rulers of people and elders of Israel. He didn't bypass that. He didn't disrespect them. He didn't say, hey, you guys. He said, hey, rulers of Israel, leaders of the people, the elders. But he doesn't make any mention of their spiritual power. He says, because they're not spiritual rulers, even though they claim to be. They had physical power, they had physical influence, and they claimed to be religious, but they didn't really have a spiritual power. It's very much like today, where people in politics are telling people what is right and wrong. How does a politician (laughs) tell me what is morally right and wrong? How can a politician make that decision? Or what can believe and be exercised and what can't, as though as though they have any power over these things. They don't. I don't have power over them. You don't have power over them. Only God can say what's right and wrong. And yet we as people, whether it's in a religion or a political sphere or any or educational sphere, we say this is right and this is wrong. But we're not the authority here. But verse 8, again, this comes about from a miracle. About from a miracle. You know, uh, People get arrested today and told it's illegal to feed the homeless. I don't know if you read that recently in the news, but 33 cities ban or are considering banning sharing food with homeless people. <laughs> it's so silly, don't you? Like when you just think about it for what it actually is. But when you read more, you realize the reason why they're doing that is because they want to prevent government-run programs from being diluted or losing the power. They say, you can't feed them, but we can feed them. <laughs> well, if we feed them, you can go feed some other guys, right? You can go feed other homeless people, right? And more homeless people will get fed. But wait until the God, wait until God uses the church to begin healing. Wait until God does that. You know how much the government's going to come against the church? The government doesn't come against the church right now too much because we don't really do too much. We don't really say too much against what the government has to say. And I'm not here to give a political message. What I'm saying is if we go out and begin to do things in Jesus' name, and especially as the government begins to want to get rid of Jesus' name and the people want to get rid of Jesus' name, Wow, if we begin to actually do stuff in Jesus' name, there's going to be friction there. There has to be. But again, the explanation of the miracle is faith in Jesus' name. And that's who he is. That's the power. Not that it was this, like I said, a magic potion or a magic spell or magic words that he said. But it was in the name of Jesus because that is who he is. That is who God is. Verse 10, for the third time, the Holy Spirit gives Peter a message to speak, and Peter gives basically the same message he gave the day of Pentecost, and basically the same message he gave to the people. He doesn't change his tune. 
He keeps saying the same thing because that's the truth and that's the word that God wants to get out here. That Jesus of Nazareth, this specific guy who lived on earth, died at your hands, you crucified him, but he rose again and he's in heaven because he is the name. I am. Exodus 3, 13 and 15 says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name, and what shall I say to them? Who do I tell them sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations, my name, that I am who I am, that I am eternal, and the one who loves you. And that there is one God, and he has a name. Whereas Proverbs might say, and tell me his son's name if you can. But by him, that he's the power. He's the power. We're, the, we're only here by his name. And it's remember that it's important for us to remember where the real power comes from. You know, God may begin to use us. God may have, have used us in the past. We may begin to think that, oh, yeah, I have this, all these degrees, and maybe God has brought you to Bible school, brought you to seminary, and taught you these things. But that's not where the power comes from. The power comes from God. You know, John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. I blew a fuse in my car last week. The fog light stopped working. And I, I was flipping the switch, and it was still lighting up on the inside. So I figured, all right, it's probably got a fuse. I popped the hood, and a fuse was blown, so I've ordered a new fuse. But that's it. I can press the switch all day long. I can flip my lights on and off all day long, and my fog lights will never come on until I replace that fuse. Or our dependence on electricity. When the power goes out, we begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, I got a fridge full of food. I can't watch TV. I have to use my cell phone. What happens when the battery goes out of my cell phone? I'm not going to be able to charge it. We've, we're very dependent on this power that we take for granted. And yet at the moment it's cut off, we're powerless. We're very powerless. And that's the same way with the Lord. If there's something hindering our walk with the Lord, if there's some sin that's burst that fuse, that connection with the Lord, or there's some neglect on our part, man, we're not going to have the power. Because it only comes from one place. It doesn't come from the physical ink and paper in this book. It comes from God, who wrote the book. But he says in verse 12, that there's, as we close here, there is no salvation in any other, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, this miracle of this man being healed was through the name of Jesus, God. It heals this man. It brings these other people to salvation. And then it actually opens up the door for these guys to share with the religious leaders, that the religious leaders might be saved. That in a strange way, this is God's plan to, release, to reach the Sadducees and say, hey, look, there is power in my name. But the things that the religious people, the world, intellectuals, even Christians sometimes, faith in Jesus, they throw out. But Jesus really is the cornerstone. He's the one that holds all these things together. If we don't have faith in Jesus, if Jesus isn't the cornerstone of our faith, of what we believe, of our practice, of how we really just live life, we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. You know, there's, there's one thing that holds that all together, and that's Jesus. It's true religion, true relationship, and true, light, and true enlightenment. It's all built on Jesus. If we don't know what the Word of God says and who the name of God is... Well, our enlightenment is not really enlightenment. 
Our religion is not true religion, as James might say. Our relationship with God is not really a relationship at all because we're missing God himself, Jesus, Yahweh. His name even means that. Yahweh is salvation. Yahshua. He's the only way. We're going to be delivered up in this country. I have no doubt about that. I have no doubt about that, that we're going to be delivered up one day. And when that happens, we need to remember the name of Jesus, where the power comes from. Trust me, I don't want to be delivered up. I'd rather have an easy life and wish the uh, people wanted to hear the gospel and things were easier, but that's not the plan God has. We need to remember the words of Jesus and where the power comes from in Matthew 10. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. That we have a relationship with a Father who's going to do the speaking for us. If my kids get in trouble somewhere, if they grow up or you know something happens, I'm going to do the speaking for them. I'm going to have words with them, believe you me, whether it's right or wrong. But I'm going to do the speaking for them. I'm going to defend them. I'm not going to leave my daughter or my son out to be defended. I'm going to do that. And it's the same way with God. When we're delivered up for believing in our Father who loves us, He's going to speak for us. So, Father, we thank you for that, and we thank you for the gospel, and we thank you, God, that, uh, Lord, you are our Father, and that you love us, and you want us to have a right relationship with you. And, God, I ask that you would begin to cultivate that through your word, that we would all spend more time in your word, and getting to know what your word says, that even if we have doubts or, or don't believe, that we would just say, God, would you show me? Would you show me who you really are through it? And, God, that's what you want for us, that we would know you. That when we do die and we do go to the afterlife, so to speak, that, Lord, when we see you, we would know you. And we'd be able to spend eternity with you. Not because you want us to go to hell, because you don't, but that we would choose you now. That we would know the real authority in heaven and earth. And, God, we pray that you'd bring this nation around. You'd bring Christians around to know the truth. We pray you'd bring religious leaders in this area to know your truth. We pray you'd bless the churches in the area. Um, And God, that you would uh, be with those who are in prison for their faith in you, that you would strengthen this day. And we ask you to bless the rest of our time. And uh, we thank you for all you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.